And we're back, uh, we're back here um, uh, because we, a couple years ago, we came back unexpectedly because we had a rough year. Uh, won't go into that. I don't mind telling you the story behind that. But we're back. We shouldn't be back here right now. We hope to go back. Um, we are back. Um, and this passage, you might think, what is Isaiah? Why are we diving into the middle of Isaiah 35? You know, the prophets are obscure to begin with. And uh, this passage, I'll, I'll say this, uh, and I'll repeat this again, but this passage sort of uh, became special to me in the throes of that rough year that we had. And, and the imagery of it kind of captures part of living in West Africa. If you've ever, any of you have ever been in uh, West Africa, it's pretty arid. But let me give you a little bit of an intro to, before I... Um, before I even read the passage, let me give you a little intro, just because we are diving into the middle of Isaiah, what is, who is Isaiah, and in the middle of his apocalyptic language. Um, you have to remember this, that in this, the setting here, it was the 700s or 600s BC in Isaiah. I don't claim all of you know who he was or what he was up to. He was a prophet. He was ministering to the south, Judah, by then God's people had kind of, a little civil war had broken into two, it Israel and Judah. He was ministering to the south as it watches in his lifetime that the north, Samaria, gets sacked by Assyria. So while he is ministering to the people of God in the south, they watch the northern part of the people of God get sacked um, and taken out. Assyria remains a threat, will eventually be replaced by Babylon. Um, this is all historic. And uh, Babylon will eventually overtake Judah in the south. And in 586, leads Judah into exile, drags them away, crushes them. Um, there is a, a scholar, a commentator I've had the privilege of sitting under. He's written a huge tome on Isaiah, but... He walked through a whole weekend with a congregation, walked through Isaiah once, uh, if you can imagine that. And one of the things he said, I'll never forget it. He said, you kind of, and sometimes in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, you need to feel the politics. Now, I'm pretty apolitical. You don't know me. Some, most of you don't know me, but I'm pretty apolitical and intentionally as a, as a minister. But in understanding the Bible, sometimes you need to feel the politics of what was going on and the lay of the land. And so I'm just trying to give you a, a little thumbnail of that. Um, this chapter we're about to read, uh, much of Isaiah, much of the prophets are, but this chapter in particular is a well-crafted piece of poetry. Um, one commentator, one scholar even said that the language of this chapter is unusually beautiful, chapter 35. And I hope um, this morning to capture a little bit of that instead of destroying it for us. <laughs> so, uh, but before we go any further, before I read, um, please pray with me again. Can we do that? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And Jesus, thank you for leaving behind, even on this Pentecost Sunday, your spirit. And we simply acknowledge that without your spirit, everything we do here is a waste of our time. Everything. So we acknowledge that you are with us, Holy Spirit. Would you come again, though, and um, make your word come alive to us? Uh, we need that. And we need you. Amen. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I can't tell you, well, I 
I don't know if I said it this way. I can't tell me how many times I've prayed through this when I stumbled over it while we were over there. Um, going through a rough year, a rough stretch for my kids, for my family, um, leading up to our unexpected departure from West Africa. I'm using West Africa. Uh, we have a display table back there with information. Um, it can tell you the specific country. I'm just not going to do that, I think, for recording purposes. So, But... Uh, that was a couple years ago, and as I mentioned, all the imagery here reminds me so much about being there. It's, it's interesting that you chose the eagle on Pentecost Sunday because all over, we're on the coast on a peninsula over there, and kites, some people call them fish eagles, but kites, it's like an eagle, like a hawk. They're all over the place, screeching all the time because we're on this peninsula. Um, so... That just adds to the imagery uh, that's before us today. Uh, the more I go back to the passage and, and read and prayed through it in that moment, in those moments for us as a family, I realized it captures, in general, it just captures my fear and anxiety too. And I'm going to take, at the excuse of going a little bit longer this morning, I want to um, mention a family, mention a family that are, is dear to us, that, and I would ask you to pray for them. The year we came back unexpectedly, later that fall, another family was coming to join us, another pastor and his family. And they got there last, that fall. I've been over to see them several times. We've known each other for years, have been involved in the work there, but they decided to come. And just yesterday, uh, we got word that their son, they have three kids with them, three kids back here, uh, without going into all the details, uh, but a wall in their backyard collapsed. They were hanging laundry attached to the wall, doing chin-ups, and the whole wall collapsed on their family. And their son, who is maybe 12 or 13, took the brunt of that on his foot. It crushed his heel, and he has severe soft tissue damage on the top of his foot. And they're in the process right now, today, they're four hours ahead, they're gonna evac him with his, the mom to Paris to see what they can do there, and then get them back to the States. It's pretty serious. And they've had one thing after another. I mean, we had a rough year. They've had, in less than two years, they've had an electrical fire. They've been burglarized at night while they slept. Pretty severe. It was a, it was a planned thing. And uh, I was with him in another country two weeks ago. And while we were away, they had a major tick infestation, like all over the place in their house. So that's not normal. <laughs> but um, if you could pray for them, because fear, anxiety is running high, and I feel that for them. So their, their last name is the Weaver family, um, Nicholas in particular. And they're on my mind, and it kind of brings this passage back into relief. And where I want to go with this... Um, let me read it for us. That would be important, wouldn't it? But where I want to go with this, even before I read it, is that like the people of Isaiah's day, fear, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, either one, fear affects us in profound ways, just like it did them. And only in looking to Jesus uh, do those fears begin to be reversed and replaced with hope. That's really the main idea of this passage. Um, let me read Isaiah 35. I don't have my reading glasses. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. 
The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame, the lame man leap like a deer and the image um, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon him. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, the word of God. Uh, let me just repeat where we're going, that like the people of Isaiah's day, fear affects us in profound ways. And only in looking to Jesus do those fears begin to be replaced, reversed and replaced with hope. But I want to ask a question, and it spoke of thirst. Can, can I get a glass of water? Is that okay? Somehow, someone thinks. Um, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go dry. I have a question. I want you to feel free to interact. But um, a couple of questions, and then fire back at me. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? What makes you anxious? Put yourself out on a limb. The news. The news. Gary, good to see your face. The news. What else? I'm sorry? Raising your family. Yes. What else? What makes you, what makes you fearful? And to the degree that you want to you know, be honest, um, what makes you anxious? Sorry? Being alone. Old age. Lack of control. Finances. You get the picture. I uh, preached a rendition of this sermon another time, and someone, an um, older, older gentleman, actually raised his hand and said, tomorrow. You know, So I don't know what that meant. But, and I don't claim to know where all of us are this morning. I, I don't know that, but the Lord does. And he knows that we all battle to varying degrees of fear and anxiety. Um, we could go on with that list. The friends that we work with in West Africa, um, some of the leaders have identified three fears that kind of grip people over there in that both traditional religion and, thank you so much, thank you, uh, traditional context and context of Islam. Uh, three of their fears are um, the fear of death, the fear of poverty, and the fear of isolation, you mentioned being alone. Those, those grip them as a culture, as a people, corporately. Death, poverty, isolation. It's good. I'd say go home and think about what are your fears. You know, that made me think one time about what are three fears I've kind of identified personally. Um, 
One is, uh, and they, they've all come from hints from other people. Uh, uh, wired like my mom, who's no longer with us. Most of you don't know her. But she said once that she feared getting through on, li getting through on life on her personality. And I've inherited some of her personality. So the fear of, a, of approaching life every day on my own strength, if you will. Getting by on personality. Um, the fear uh, of being hypocr hypocrite as a pastor dad. I had a student once when we did student ministry. He's from New England. His dad is a pastor. He said, yeah, my dad is like this way in public and this way at home. And I'll never forget. We, we didn't even have kids yet. But, uh, you know, I still, you think about that. You fear that. I've been guilty of that. Um, and then finally, having just uh, been in the field, um, man that used to do our taxes, took his family over to India to try to dabble with international tax law and the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he came back after a couple years. They had to come back, too. And he said, I was shocked to see how many missionaries were hiding over there, like hiding, like just not doing much of anything. And I see, I've seen how that's possible, being over on the mission field. Um, no one over your shoulder. So anyway, those are personal fears. You can take that and run with that as you will. But um, uh, fear affected the people of Isaiah in this context, as I told you, in um, very profound ways. Uh, given Judah's situation in the south, they had seemingly no future ahead, just destruction. And they, they were watching destruction up north, and they knew it, they could feel it, it was coming their way. The imagery of this passage kind of implies fear's effects. The desert, the, the dry land, they point um, to the devastation um, due to the enemy from war and oppression. It's not just about the land. It's, again, it's poetry. It's communicating something. It's, they, were they were watching devastation and on the brink of it themselves. So the desert and the dry land conveys that. Uh, there's a lack of life and joy. So this, here we have this, this poem bracketed by joy. But they, they were being sapped of their joy. You know how fear and anxiety sap you of, of joy and life. Um, fear and anxiety can be disorienting and confusing. Um, it makes us weak. There's reference here to weak hands and feeble knees relating to our action and our endurance and how fear and anxiety grip us. Our son has been writing about how many guys have wet their pants each week at Marine Basic Training. <laughs> um, uh, part of that is due to fear and anxiety. Part of that is due to the time limit they are given. But... Um, <laughs> but... Uh, fear robs you of the ability to function like you should, to endure, to simply stand up sometimes. See, it can rob you of strength. Um, it highlights threats. It mentions ravenous beasts here. Um, getting at your emotions, your mental state. Fear taunts us. Um, big ways, small ways. Our present situation, your present situation today might not like, be like that, that dire I don't know that, but corporately it's not, that's for sure. But individually, it might not, might not be that dire. Um, our friends are in a very dire situation right now. But a lot of times we act like it. And just like the people of Isaiah's day, it can affect us in profound ways. Um, sometimes it is more personal and private. Sometimes it's more corporate. You all have a church, uh, for lack of a better word, a merger, if you will, a buyout. Or, that's weird, but... Um, 
just, I don't know the language to use there, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. It does not happen that often. And that, that it has here and is moving forward here, um, that doesn't go unnoticed. And I, I hope and pray others don't miss that either. You have a beautiful opportunity in moving forward together. Um, yeah, but with that comes anxiety corporately, it can, and fear, the unknown. Um, oftentimes, though, where fear and worry, anxiety rear their ugly head is in the little stuff of everyday life. Um, I have a friend I meet with every week. I'm going to recount a conversation we had a few months ago. I just, he started to talk. We were talking about catching up on life. And I said, hey, can I use this someday? He said, um, uh, so much of our life is wasted on worry, discouragement, and discontent. Um, this beast reveals its ugly head. We get some text, you know, we'll get some text or something, and we walk around mired in it as though Jesus is still lying in the grave. Uh, if you don't suppress some of those issues, they all come bubbling to the surface. What's the value of that? How much of our life is just wasting away? If it's personal, there's a sense in which I think I can solve it myself. Thanks, Jesus, but I got this. Um, and then he just ended in that little blurb, that little monologue. He said, you know what? My money's on Jesus. But do you see what I mean? Little things grip up. When we really stop to analyze and ask, you know, what makes us afraid and fearful? There are big things, but there are small things. And they, they occupy more time than we would realize during our day. Um, even something like a small text. Uh, I, I said Isaiah ministered with people that had plenty of reason to dread, but he would remember this in that dread that he was writing to people that were without hope. They were full of doubt. What are we going to do? A couple years ago in our situation, it's paralyzing. What are we going to do? Our friends right now, what are we going to do? I, I will add that their daughters were coming over to join them and just gotten there, one with her husband, to spend finally, they've been looking forward to it all week, to spend a week together, two weeks together at the beach. And that's shot now. Um, but again, what are we going to do? Um, fear can be a sign of our unbelief. It can be a sign of us um, denying God's promises, if you will. This is full of imagery, full of hints at God's promises. But I want to say this. One thing when it comes to the promises of God... And they're very general a lot of times, and they're general here. But we become much more concerned with when they would be fulfilled than if they will be fulfilled. Do you see that? And it was the same with God's people then. We become so much more preoccupied with when. When will God's promises be fulfilled than that they will? Um, and that gets it in reverse, and that gets us into all sorts of trouble. If you didn't realize the rest of the history, I told you that um, Judah then was finally taken away in 586. And you know what happened after that? We're not in football season right now, but um, I'd never forgotten this analogy when I heard it. It was as though God punted. He punted. It was fourth and long, and he punted for 500 years. Jesus didn't come for 500 years. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise and promises. 500 years. That's what, six generations or so? Um, we have never 
if we want to try to hold a torch to that with any of the waiting we've done, learning lessons on waiting in the Lord, we can't hold a torch to that. Even corporately, even our family, we can't even trace most of our families back that far, 500 years. But they waited 500 years um, for these promises to be really initially fulfilled in Jesus. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh. That was mentioned earlier. Some of you, I hope, have seen Mr. Rogers' documentary. Yeah, how many have seen it? Go see it, the rest of you, please. I, don't know. I cried five times. Um, this wasn't in that movie, but I did hear a subsequent quote um, from Mr. Rogers. He said once that I'm very concerned that our society is much more interested in information than in wonder. Wonder. Hope. And that can bog us down, information. Some of you mentioned the news. Um, but this poem, this chapter is full of wonder. It's full of hope. And just as fear affects um, us in profound ways, we could go on and on and on. I want to start moving through the imagery, though, to look to Jesus, um, to see how those fears and hopes can be reversed and replaced with hope. Um, I want to move through the imagery now and just basically sh- let us see how Jesus owns all the imagery in here. Um, at the beginning, it mentions Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. I don't expect you to be up on your ancient Near Eastern geography, but that was the western part of that, the Holy Land, if you will, butting up against the Mediterranean. And to put it in our perspective, Lebanon, Lebanon's glory, it says, was its trees and vegetation. That would be like the Piedmont, okay, of North Carolina. Carmel, reference to Mount Carmel, be like us here in Western Carolina in the mountains. And Sharon is like the coastal plain um, down east. Uh, and I have um, some pictures. Do you have that first one, Jeremiah? I usually don't do this because you don't know me, because we've been in West Africa. I had the incredible opportunity with actually my two kids that are here to travel into um, a northern closed country in the Sahara Desert on New Year's several years ago. And we got a flat tire showed up at our destination in the dark. It was a wild trip, trust me, that my friend that took us it used to be in the Peace Corps up there, and he's still all Peace Corps. Um, but we're sitting there waiting for the tire to be changed, and it's just arid. It's not the duny part of the Sahara that you think of. It was like Mars. You know, we went up through this mountain pass. But there on the side of the road, that thing was about this big. There was this little melon blooming in the desert. Um, and there were a couple of them, actually. But that picture, that picture of hope, that picture of life in the middle of devastation and wasteland, um, it's gripped me, and it's never you know, let go. And I share that with you, and I explain some of this to you, because this, when we read passages like this, if you've never lived there, been there, it just doesn't cut us for us. Um, uh, my wife flew back from a lady, with a lady once. You ever heard her conversation? They're flying back from up north, uh, South Dakota, the lady was from South Dakota, and she literally said um, she didn't like North Carolina because it has too many trees. <laughs> like if you've never been to South Dakota, it's pretty you know, arid and flat. And, um, but again, I just share that as a contrast that, yes, yeah, sometimes Bible's imagery about heaven, about life, about the ancient Near East doesn't cut it for us, but you need to put it in perspective with yourselves um, and translate it into things that make you fearful, uh, devastation in life. Um, 
There's another couple of pictures. I'll just go ahead with them right now. That's a, a baobab tree in West Africa. And we're coming up on what's over there called the rainy season. It lasts like two or three months. They get a bunch of rain, and then it stops. It gets humid, but things grow. And so two, three months out of the year, that place looks like that. Those are peanut crops in the foreground. But nine months out of the year, go ahead to the next one. It looks like that. And you feel it. It cools down a little bit at that time of year, especially January, February. But all the dust comes in. And it doesn't rain for months. And um, it's dry. And just like when we moved to Western Carolina, we put a little update out to our family. We, we got here in 01, but my wife said, you know, the views here, and I, I, would, I would expect you all to agree that the views here never get old. Whether you've lived here all your lives or not, they never get old. Well, that change that happens every year never gets old. Because you're looking, there aren't many hills, but you're looking at everything as brown. And then all of a sudden, you just never cease to be amazed by how green everything becomes for that short season of the year. Anyway, that imagery, you can leave that up there, take it off, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, Jeremiah, thank you. But, but people will experience change when coming to the Lord. Just like the desert can undergo complete change, or arid places can undergo complete change for the better. On that trip to the Sahara, we were on a high plateau way out in the middle of nowhere. And there were these caves with pictures of giraffes, with pictures of, of livestock, these ancient cave paintings. And even on that flat where that melon was, there were shells and crystalline fossils. And that used to be lush, if you can picture that. And it's not anymore. So, but change from old to new. The emphasis isn't on the, the miraculous healing, per se, of the land. But the, the part of the bigger picture is what, when the Lord comes, there's going to be change, and sometimes radical change. Um, many of you, we sang about that. I've tasted, I've tasted. Many of you have tasted that change when you come to the Lord, when you continue to come to him. Um, what those changes look like in life, in, in your heart, in your attitude. We're constantly being reoriented. All these expressions, quoting a, a commentator, simply indicate in beautiful fashion how far-reaching and thoroughly radical will be the change that the coming of the Lord accomplishes. accomplishes. Complete, all-embracing, radical change. It's hard to see that sometimes, um, but we do see that. We are given glimpses of that personally and in our world. Uh, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead gives strength and courage and, and also, it shows that Jesus is near to bring comfort and justice. In, in verses 3 and 4, when it says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. It's reminiscent of somewhere else, Joshua, those of you familiar with that. Be, fear not, be courageous. Um, the hasty and impatient here, they're actually commanded to behold your God who will come with vengeance. He'll bring justice. We sang about that earlier. It's not, what this is getting at is it's not like God, as majestic and full of glory as he is, it's not that he's far off. It's really strong language here to say and convey that he is at hand the moment he's needed. As, as quick and as soon as fear and anxiety can grip us, I'm referring to that text again, 
He is at hand. He is that close and near. Um, and then we get to the center of this imagery. Really, the, the center of this poem is five and seven. Then, then it repeats. Then um, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like, like a deer. Uh, God's telling his people that then right in the center of the poem, that's pointing to what was going to come for in 500 years from then. That's pointing to Jesus. It's probably these words of Isaiah that Jesus had in mind. Um, don't turn there, but just in Luke 7, I'm going to reference that. John the Baptist's disciples, they reported to him all that Jesus was doing while he started to walk the earth. Healing the centurion's servant, raising a widow's son from the dead. So John the Baptist um, sent them back to Jesus with a question. Um, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And it says that in that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many were, who were blind, he bestowed sight. And Jesus answered them. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Uh, probably did have that or something like it in mind when he was there. So we have this middle, this then that Jesus owned. I mean, that is talking about him and his coming. Um, but it goes on. Uh, you know, what, what good is he coming if, what good is his coming if there's no change? It goes on to make reference to living water. Um, Jesus talks about the water of life. You can stretch it to say he himself is the water of life in the New Testament. It goes on to talk about a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Um, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Uh, deserts, if you've never been in one, don't have much by way of transportation and safety. In fact, where we were, we probably couldn't go today. Where we were, my friend that took us there, would had been driven out, got on a short list of extremists, um, five years earlier, and had to leave and evacuate, evacuate with his family. When we went up there, I was like, are you sure it's okay? He's like, yeah, it's okay. Today, several years later, we probably could not go back up there. Um, anyway, deserts have little by way of transportation and safety. The reference here, when it talks about a highway shall be there, it's talking about an obvious highway, um, not merely a road. It would be like the difference between um, I-240 in general and the Bowcutcher Boat catcher cut, okay? Uh, in Town Mountain Road. Some of you know what Town Mountain Road is? You ever been on Town Mountain Road? Can you see Town Mountain Road? Not really. Can you see Boat Catcher Cut? Absolutely. Or the parkway. You can see when you look at the ridges, especially in the winter, you can see the parkway. Ever been on the viaduct up near Boone? It's pretty obvious. It's like comparing that to like a Forest Service access road. Um, what it's saying is it's very clear, it's very well marked. Um, and it's kind of like Jesus. <laughs> you cannot miss him. You can ignore him, but you can't miss him. Uh, it's very obvious, very clear who he is and what he's come to do. He makes that clear. It also says that the unclean won't pass over. It uses some language here that's a little interesting. Um, it says that uh, the, that all who walk on it, well, let me read it for you. It says, uh, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now, 
in that last section, it's talking about the, the redeemed, those who are ransomed, those who are clean, not the unclean. Those will walk, are the only ones who will walk on that way. Um, but it's important to remember, ultimately, that all who walk on it are really unworthy at the end of the day, that everyone is unworthy to walk on that road. So this language, when it says, even if they're fools, they shall not go astray, um, it's not so much that fools will travel it, but what it's getting at is, and I love it, it's kind of full of grace, that little phrase. Even if they're fools, they won't go astray. But what it's really saying is, the way will be so clearly marked, um, so well constructed and easy to follow, that even fools would not go astray on it. And that's hope for you and me. Many of you that already follow Jesus because we continue to be foolish. And it's promising that even we in our foolish ways will not go astray once we've gotten on that way and found that way. Um, so it's accessible. It's approachable. You can't miss it. Jesus is the same. He's accessible. He's approachable. You can ignore him, as I said, but you can't miss him. Um, and it gives new meaning to Paul's language when he says things like this in the New Testament. Um, passages some of you are familiar with that we kind of live and breathe. But Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. That's right out of this imagery. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. Or humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that when the proper time, so at the proper time, he would exalt you. And here, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Again, these are verses that some of you have tucked away for years but we don't live them consistently. And hopefully in some small way, this little passage, this poem, this chapter brings those into um, to new life for us as a reminder this morning. Uh, Jesus, as the way, he's also safe. Verse 9, um, it says that no lion shall be there or any ravenous beast. Um, it's a categorical statement. It's a complete denial that they will not be found there. Again, very strong language that Jesus is safe. Um, it's your land. You get to walk it. You know, land is a big thing to us here in the United States. In West Africa, where we were, land, at the end of the day, as best I could understand it, you never really outright own your own land. At the end of the day, somewhere, somehow, it's still owned by the community because Africa is relational and very communal, and we have a lot to learn from that. So it throws, like, individual rights out the door. Um, but here, getting at that, it's saying, this is your land. You can walk on it. It's yours. Um, the redeemed is pointing to the promises and people that are delivered from the enemy. Uh, it, again, it, all this gives, infuses other passages of Scripture where Jesus says, take heart. You know, I've come, overcome the world. Love, perfect love, casts out fear. Um, and it says here at the end that they shall obtain gladness and joy. Um, it's better read as gladness and joy will overtake them. That's actually the language. Not that they will get it, but that it will get them. <laughs> that gladness and joy will overtake them. And in fact, it brackets this whole poem. 
the, the idea of joy and rejoicing, if you look at it, it's at the beginning and the end. For all the negative imagery that's implied there, um, it's full of hope and beauty. Uh, I want to kind of wrap up, need to wrap up, but I want to say this by way of just um, application and reminder that I don't want to spiritualize away fear and anxiety. Um, you all, first of all, you have each other. You have a covenant community. Uh, I mentioned earlier the two of your churches coming together or one kind of coming into the other. Uh, I don't want that to be lost on you, lost on me. Um, and in saying that, I want to say that this just doesn't deserve individual application. We in America, as Christians, we're good at individualizing stuff instead of thinking about it corporately. You have a, you're living that out right now. You have a, a, an opportunity to live that out corporately, uh, overcoming fear, anxiety, whatever, uh, whether petty or, or large. Uh, in applying this, don't just apply it individually, but look to apply it corporately. What's that going to look like in my family? What's that going to look like in our church? Um, and then secondly, the place of counseling. We talk, we're talking about fear and anxiety. Again, I don't want to spiritualize it away. Um, sometimes it requires clinical attention. Um, some of you know that and can appreciate that. Sometimes that requires medication. And we're not going into that today. But nor are we spiritualizing it completely away. But I just wanted to mention those things by way of reminder. Um, Jesus' first coming isn't the ultimate fulfillment of this, by the way that middle part of this poem. Um, it, but it is a guarantee. Today's Pentecost Sunday. What's the Holy Spirit referred to sometimes in Scripture? As a, a guarantee, a down payment, a deposit. Hey, I'm leaving. I know it looks bad that I'm leaving. They're confused that he was leaving them. But trust me, it's better that I go away <laughs> because the Spirit will be with you. And he'll be with you. He'll be in you. And we'll be united um, and he is a down payment, a guarantee of all these promises, of all this hope. Um, so instead of allowing the door to open to, fe open to fear, which we often cave to in our own doubt, um, Jesus' coming is supposed to drive away that fear. It's as though God's saying, don't you see it's as good as done? Now, we don't taste all that now. We know he's coming back. Um, but if you have tasted of him, you know that uh, he begins to drive those fears away and gives you some place to turn um, to deal with those, to acknowledge them. Um, when we look to other things, we become anxious. Little things, big things. But the more we look to Jesus, those things tend to fade away. Um, there are times when our present sorrow and sighing, it ends on this beautiful note, flee away. Uh, I lost two friends the first half of this year completely unexpectedly, an old hunting buddy from Pennsylvania, um, terrible, just a freak hunting accident, and he would have been 59. He died the Saturday before Christmas and would have been 59 the day after Christmas. And then just a month ago, last fall I had my 30th high school reunion, and a month ago got word that um, a friend of mine uh, died in his sleep, 48 years old, who had become a believer, a follower of Jesus as an adult later in life. And I'm just sharing with those stories that they're, they're, they're fine now. Their sorrow and sighing has fleed away forever. But for those behind, the sorrow and sighing still can rear its head. 
um, the sorrow and sighing, they come back. But you need to start and you need to finish, like this poem does, with the note of joy and rejoicing. You need to start and finish and can you to continue to look to Jesus who owns all the imagery in here. Um, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus does bring change. Many of you have tasted that. I would encourage the rest of you to taste of that. Uh, he is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just a proposition. It's a person. Um, and he is very, very clear, very accessible, and very near. And you all know uh, full well that there are times when he meets us in moments of, to quote the Bible elsewhere, when he meets us in moments of joy inexpressible and full of glory. Um, our Jesus does that. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for the imagery of your word. Foreign to us, not foreign to your people. But nor are the promises that you have in store for us foreign to us. Uh, would you come um, and even in some small way today drive away our fear, our anxiety, whatever grips us. And uh, replace it with hope. That hope, The hope that comes in looking uh, to our Savior, our strong Savior. Uh, whose name is Jesus. Uh, amen.